0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network.
1: Welcome. Speaking Duck on NeverSleepsNetwork.com. I'm your host, Alex Ross, and what a treat. We have a past guest bringing in a friend from the San Francisco Bay Area. I want to welcome Richie Nakano and joining us with Scott Vivian from Beast Restaurant. And Richie is formerly of Hapa Ramen in California. And uh, Richie got some popularity recently on Anthony Bourdain's show, No Reservation, and he's been working his ass off in California and on social media, proving to everyone what real food is, not only in North America, but the world. Uh, How does that make you feel, Richie, when you are now being kind of idolized around an Anthony Bourdain interview? Is it kind of the Midas touch when you meet Anthony Bourdain? Did your socials blow up after that episode? It didn't really. I mean, people received it really well, but my socials kind of stayed the same.
0: And my social media isn't for everybody, I'd say. As much as people follow me on there, people also unfollow based on certain opinions that I have.
1: And we're going to touch on that. I want to welcome Two very fun and opinionated chefs Thank you for coming, Scott Richie, welcome to Toronto What have you boys been up to since Richie landed? Taking him around Eating and drinking as much as possible Yeah, any places you want to shout out?
2: Was the place we went to last night? the pizza place uh super point yeah we did Ooh. some super point last night and the burger place we went to was really and we good. hit
1: up Harry's the night before okay that's yeah. this I mean you obviously have the best tour guide in culinary <laughs> here in Toronto at, in Scott Vivian uh when you go back to the Bay Area Richie how do you explain Toronto to California
0: uh I tell people it's really cool and it's yeah, people don't understand what Toronto is I think when you yeah. think of everyone in San Francisco is like I want to go to Vancouver or I want to go to Montreal no one ever talks about about toronto so when i tell them i'm like it's this big city and it's really cool and it's young and like there's great food there they're usually surprised i, I mean i think that when people see on social like all the stuff that we go out and do
1: it looks fun oh so. it, toronto is fun i think yeah. that's a, a common misconception on an international scale because canada is kind of you know second to u.s on an international scale but when you're in north america when you're in like an east coast west coast vibe like to me i love toronto just as much as i love montreal Cleveland, you know, you know, neighboring cities that make an east coast kind of vibe. And when you go to the West coast, the same reasons I love Seattle, you love Portland, mm-hmm. you love, you know, Vancouver, uh, you know, how does Toronto make you feel though? I mean, I, I don't know. I feel really at home here because That's good. you know, I have a
0: lot of family in New York and Toronto has like a New Yorkie vibe to it. Uh, it's like a nicer, cleaner, Brooklyn, you know,
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you like can actually that. get
0: around. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's great. It's walkable. It's young. The people are really nice.
1: No one jaywalks here, I noticed. No, we're too polite. Yeah, We do. Come on, you got to give us a little bit of credit. We, we are like New York and Amsterdam had a love child. You know, there's not enough people around to bother you at any given time. We're like New York. is like wall-to-wall people. And everyone here just wants to smoke pot, eat good food, drink good coffee, and get as minimal work done as possible. Unless you're like in the Bay Area or the Bay Street area. Uh, so since you guys have been in town, you guys have been checking out Harry's Charboil. One of the best burgers, in my opinion, in town. Yep. Uh, Super Point. So that's kind of an American pizza style to finally make it to Toronto. What, what does that make you feel like when we're emulating stuff that, you know, it's basically from your home? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't, you know, I think that in terms of like Canadian
0: food, we, we eat a lot of good stuff here. Like I think Scott's food is uniquely global Canadian, you know? So, but I mean, like, I don't know. I don't feel like it's... Well, it's, a, it's American pizza it feels like Toronto's sure. own spin on it you know maybe so. my
1: better question would be what what are some of like the more standout dining experiences between Canada and the US oh well uh, we ate it at, we had a really good dinner at Buca. yeah like what was
0: it like two years ago two years ago we went yeah. there um, I mean, whenever we come here, we always go to Home of the Brave, and we always have great food there and a lot of whiskey. Yeah, a lot, a lot um, of whiskey. It's
1: good that yeah. Scott takes you at least five to ten minutes from his house restaurant. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's good to know all the restaurants he's taking to. Well, he is, Scott, you are in an area of the city that does have an international vibe to it. If you go to New York, if you go to California, King Street, you know, picking out the kind of bougie clubs stuff the food selection the kind of upscale versions of simple foods the kind of way we you know the funny thing is Beast is kind of the opposite of that Beast is like this gem surrounded by a lot of kind of corporation and you know there's a lot of good food I'm not saying that any of the places you named are, are, are against or, or a part of that kind of scene but uh, there are a lot of that in King Street West and you know having Beast's chef not only the gem of itself uh, uh, serving the type of food that is not corporate it's definitely driven from the city and he took you to home of the brave another great example of Canadian cooking but with an American feel mm-hmm. I mean home of the brave it doesn't get any more of American <laughs> name than that so what are the dining differences though like what do you see that's drastic because you've been posting on I've been watching you on Twitter you went to a pizza place that put vegetables that you weren't really approving of <laughs> on your pizza like you, I, you know I love your stuff because you were making fun of like shitty looking burgers and stuff not all in Toronto but that just the, the first example happened to be so what are the kind of standouts that you yourself see
0: uh, here in Toronto yeah I mean you know what I love about Toronto is it's not afraid to take risks with the food and there is that like global approach to a lot of the food whereas in san francisco i think that there's a need to play it safe a lot of the time you know rent is really high there and you want to have mass appeal and everything and here i find that there's a little bit more like push to the cuisine which i think is really cool uh like, when we eat at Imanishi, it's like, we always have really, really interesting, like, fun food there.
2: Um, Edgeless. We went to Edgeless last time we you yeah. were here. Good. Yeah.
1: Good. Scott's doing his homework. Epic, He's, yeah.
2: Epic, one of the epic meals that we've had, for sure, since you've been here. Yeah, that meal
1: was intense. Yeah, that's it, it good. It, it's it's Scott's responsibility to be bringing you to Edgeless and to be bringing, you know what I mean? Like, when I bring my friends from out of town to Toronto. Scott's is the first restaurant I take them to because you're right, it's this worldly, fair, done kind of home, you know, comfort food style but with flavors from all over the world but using a lot of local ingredients. Mm-hmm. It, I, I'm, I'm assuming coming from California, that's kind of a is there a lot of Scott Vivians in California? Everyone that's just trying, is it all local? Is it all, let's take our take on this kind of cuisine and it's your own? Like, is that what you did with Hapa Ramen? I mean, I wish there was Scott Vivian's. (laughs) There can only be one. There can only be one.
0: God Uh, God help us. I mean, there's a lot of good, you know, like visions in California, you know, chefs that really do their own thing. There's tons of guys like that. Uh, But there's, I think like you were saying here, there's a lot of corporate stuff, you know, in California, I think that there's just a lot of sameness there in terms of like what i did with hoppa we definitely tried to you know push beyond like tradition and sort of have our own voice and do our own style of food that wasn't just specifically japanese in california it's all local and market driven and organic and pasture raised meats and things like that which is great so everyone has like the best products there but in terms of like pushing beyond just like the standard fare it's really like a handful of restaurants i'd say that do it really really well you know,
1: we'll, we'll get you to shout those out as, as we go. Let's talk more about you, about where you grew up and where you first fell in love with food and cooking. Uh, I was born in Virginia.
0: Um, and then, like I said, like my my mom's side of the family has a lot of people in New York. My dad came from Japan via Hawaii. They met in New York and then they had me. They had my sister. We ended up moving to California when I was, I don't know, like eight or nine or something like that you know i'm definitely california raised in terms of food like my grandfather on my dad's side was a chef and you know my parents cooked dinner every night we ate dinner together every night mom had a garden and um my dad is actually a really really good cook so i just was around food a lot growing up. I also ate a lot of crap, you know, I mean, I had a lot of McDonald's and, you know, TV dinners and top ramen and stuff like that. In California,
1: what's the competition like as you grow up in California, seeing the different styles, seeing a lot of famous chefs growing up, where does your interest of cooking come and say, Hey, this is where I I can do this better. There's a lot of competition in
0: California. Um, it's, it's pretty intense. There's a ton of restaurants there. Um, but the community, there's also, also really good and supportive of one another you know everyone sees each other at the farmers markets and you know you try to go out and eat at everyone's restaurants and support each other and in terms of like what i was doing when i started doing Hapa, no one was doing ramen in any other style than like you know standard like shoyu ramen there was like i don't want to say four or five places in san francisco so um and now it's really like blown up and there's a ton of ramen there so and everyone wants to talk about like what's the best one Which I think is the dumbest shit ever, you know, because like you can have 15 ramen restaurants and they can all be good for something. So
1: uh, isn't that all food, though? That's what I hate about how we have to decipher what's the best in a city. It's like, how do you feel? Where are you going to be? What do you want to spend? Yeah, I
0: mean, I think that it leads to a really unsustainable environment business environment, you know, because everyone's saying like. Everyone wants to be the hot new restaurant or everyone wants to be on a top 10 list or they want to be on a heat map or whatever. And that's fleeting, you know, and eventually when you're not on that thing anymore and you're 10 years down the road, like how do you keep up the hype around your restaurant? It makes no sense. Yeah. So that part of it's frustrating, you know, and at the same time, like it's nice to be on like best new restaurant list or whatever, but, uh, you know i just think that it leads to uh just this constant cycle of like needing to be new and fresh and you know i mean diners in san francisco fucking go out to a restaurant and they, they want to be there on the first night that it's open they want to like put it on instagram and everything and then they never come back you know they're like just constantly rolling on and on and on to one-offs one-offs
1: yeah. that i don't understand either yeah
0: so I get that like in food media, people want to be on top of the, the hot new thing, but
1: we should be celebrating restaurants that have been around for, you know, 10 years, 15 years. The thing about Toronto is there's too many restaurants that you go to only once. And that, that might be the sim, uh, a similar case in San Francisco or in California. Toronto's so saturated in a lot of ways. Restaurants open and they're here today, gone later today. Or, you know, you are sometimes wondering why a restaurant is here for only a limited amount of time. Is, the, is there a larger corporation wanting to own up this land? Are they going to put condos there? There's so many questions there. To me, if I go to a restaurant and I, did, I recently went to one on the weekend, which was overhyped and very expensive and for that alone i didn't f- feel fulfilled and i won't return and it's one of like toronto's top 10 restaurants every time and i was very let down because i think of that hype overall and to me in toronto especially because it is a restaurant city we are a dining city i put the restaurants that i frequent the most at the top of my list every time scott vivian's included not just because he's down the street from me you know jesse valens maybe believe Tavern Johnson Sinopoly, Ascari and Ateca. I can name them because each of them have their own amazing dish they do their own thing and I want that every time I crave that you know I'm definitely trying new things all the time but you can tell what your favorites are and what's your opinion on You know, with the corporations being involved and I'm not even talking about on the dining side, but say on the marketing side, you know, everybody wants to be on a top 10 list. But how many people are paying for their spot? How many people are, you know, being influenced by corporations who have money? And I'm not saying people, I'm saying like other corporations, essentially.
0: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, definitely with restaurants now, like so much money is poured into PR, you know, um, And if you have the right connections and you have the right PR person, then you can land on a lot of those top 10 lists and be invited to do events and stuff like that. And then you see people that just go out and like hustle and make good food and they manage to get there also, you know, I mean, do do you ever get people uh, ask you like, Who does your PR? And you're like, you know, (laughs) me. Yeah, shrug at them.
2: Like, have you ever
1: seen Scott's Twitter? It's clearly Scott. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I can't afford PR. That's (laughs) right. Right. You know, in all honesty, Beast is such uh, an extension of myself as it is. I couldn't imagine paying somebody to say things about my restaurant that, if it's not coming from me, I don't it's just like the food it's it's not it's not legit it's not valid uh i don't think there's anybody who can run my social media account better than than i can because it's just truthful and honest um i think i mean if i can interject with what i kind of recognize with san francisco being quite different than Toronto. As far as the dining scene goes, I think quality of restaurant wise, it matches up. You definitely have a lot more higher end fine dining restaurants in San Francisco. Um, and Michelin it, stars. Yeah. I mean, Michelin ha- plays a big part in yep. that as well. Um, and I always, I always forget until I go back to the States. Um, when you talk about restaurants like Buka and beast and Edulis and all these places, uh, I guess maybe because I have a small restaurant, I think in that different mentality. But when I go to San Francisco and it's a restaurant that I've heard of then and Richie takes me there, they're always so much bigger than I had anticipated them to be. And I think that that, plays a huge part in your overall um kind of the way that you're going to run your restaurant is uh, i only have to fill 32 seats every night these guys have to fill 100 seats or more every night their rent is much more expensive even though toronto's market is getting pretty up there but san francisco is usually number one in the world as far as cost of living and all that kind of stuff goes so um i think i think uh, touching on that like corporate kind of thing that also has a lot to do in San Francisco with who the diners are Toronto you you have a lot of smaller companies and stuff like that I mean we do have some bigger banks and stuff but um, our dining scene is pretty vast Um, you have huge Asian communities you have very international kind of minded people Um, not that you don't in San Francisco but San Francisco also has which I think and you can correct me if I'm wrong Richie uh, the kind of the, the the driving force of the dining scene or a huge part of it in san francisco is that tech industry that kind of those are the people with money those are the single people that that you know they have their apartment that they pay three thousand dollars a month for but they're never there because they're going out to eat they're going out to the bars and stuff like that and so i think they play a big part in the restaurant's success
1: how high are these people's expectations in san francisco yeah uh high yeah it, it sounds like it yeah i mean is it possible to even meet these expectations no (laughs) yeah exactly i mean like let's be blunt about this (laughs) i
0: think that you can't try to meet people's uh, expectations you just have to make good food there you know and have your own vision and just try to like do your best every day because people are going to talk shit no matter what and there's lots of people that are really appreciative of the food but san francisco is a funny place to cook you know it can be really hard and it can be as much as it can be rewarding it can be also you know punishing at the same time but like scott was saying i mean like with the big restaurants there, like you have to have either a a restaurant that has a really high check average or, uh, you know, does a, a tasting menu that costs $200 and you have to do two turns or you have to have a restaurant that's big and, you know, you can do two and a half turns if you want to make money there. You know, having a 30 seat restaurant in San Francisco You'll you'll be grinding the whole time, and you'll never you know, you'll never ever get ahead. You know.
1: Interesting. How does that work about numbers? Like, I mean, is it just because you have to fill a hundred seats to make enough money to pay rent to pay to make money, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's a combination of
0: things. I mean, like. The ingredients we use there, since we use really good stuff, food costs are high. since right. uh, you know, rents are obviously through the roof, and then labor there. You know, if you want to get a cook to work for you and you want to retain them, you're talking paying twenty to twenty five dollars an hour there. Sure, you know, I mean, like low end, you're paying a guy like nineteen, and then servers there make fifteen dollars an hour. Right. There's no tip credit or anything like that. There's a lot of different factors that work against you to make your costs just go through the roof. You know, and so. In order to combat that, you either have to have a really high check average or you have to, you know, like just be cranking out huge numbers and doing volume all the time.
1: And this is known information. It's not like. <laughs> like, I want to talk about Hopper Ramen. I want to talk about how, you know, the tech industry basically... Their involvement in the food industry is... Their expectations are even probably higher than the diners. And that's kind of where you kind of ended up.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the thing with that, with the tech industry is a lot of people made a lot of money very, very quickly. And it's not to say that the tech industry hasn't done, like, good things for San Francisco and for the economy and things like that. But... I think there's something to be said for working on a thing that isn't like tangible in terms of like tech that you can't like put your hands on and then those people getting involved in an industry like food where you know everything is hands-on and the margins are really thin and you don't make a ton of money very quickly and um you see a lot of these guys invest in restaurants or invest in food and they end up you know, like either pulling out or closing the companies down or whatever, just because the money's not there, you know? And I don't know why they think they can make so much money in food. Somebody should just tell them. Well,
1: yeah, that's just you know? it too. Like let's, <laughs> let's, let's bring Scott into this. You know, you've been working on your restaurant for seven years, you know, does the money come in year one? No. Does the money come in year two? No. You, you even told me in our last interview, like you've been having the best year now, seven years into it. And kind of, that's the progression that we should be expecting. You know, you want to Touch a little bit about how you know you've been working at this one location of course for seven years but it probably didn't take more than three years to get a real bankroll started
2: yeah i mean listen there's a 32 seat restaurant is a is a is a very niche kind of thing it's it was never the point of of making money it was working in a space where i could do what i wanted to do and how i wanted to do it and in a, in a space that is a bit forgiving in that sense as well. I I don't have to fill a hundred seats every night. It was never an idea of making any money or anything like that. It was being able to live comfortably and and running a restaurant that I enjoyed and was proud of. It's it's pretty well known in the industry. Like if you want to make money, <laughs> you have to have like fifty, sixty seats or or more. Um, Along with the difficulties that come with filling those seats are also the rewards because you don't you do start to see more of a profit um than a smaller restaurant but i enjoy it and i would never change it for the world um but it's definitely like like richie was saying that the grind is even seven years into it it doesn't get any easier um but i think that that also allows you to never get complacent and i think that that is part of the success of the
1: restaurant. Good point. So, Richie, talking more about, you know, how Hapa Ramen started, you eventually got involved with some tech investors or investors of of the kind uh, who came to you. You were already doing a ramen pop-up. Yeah. So we, so the way it started was we had a stall
0: at the ferry building farmer's market. So we were there two to three times a week, um, like full on, like go down, set up like a mobile kitchen, put up a tent and sell ramen during lunch. And on top of that, we did a pop up pretty regularly. Um, and then, you know, any sort of, uh, catering and things like that. We just did a ton of events all the time. And then, uh, we were going to open a restaurant, near where uh, State Bird Provisions is on Fillmore Street. And we ran, ran into a lot of problems with the build out of that restaurant. So we pulled back from doing that project and right as that happened, this guy came to me and he said like, Hey, you know, like we have a space over here in the mission. Uh, this guy owns it, you know, he'll come in and like, you know, put some money into the business and you guys can get the restaurant open and you know,
1: so Godmother comes and yeah,
0: kind of like at this like perfect time actually, because you know, with, with Fillmore street, we like lost like everything, like, you know, like poured a ton of money into it and the whole thing just fell through. So we were in a position where we needed help this guy comes in and kind of like, yeah, like fairy godmother style. And so it seemed like a really good deal and everything was fine for a while. And then he brought in some people to kind of help him manage, like all of his food businesses that he was getting involved with. And, um, that's when like a lot of the clashes started to happen in terms of, you know, the food we were doing, the, the costs and everything. I mean, we finally got the restaurant open and we were a month in and they were talking about like the restaurant isn't making money, you know, like we, like we haven't made our money back. So like what's going on and like, well, let's close this place out. a month in, you know? So there was a lot of problems there and I made some like bad business decisions and unfortunately, you know, like everything kind of like fell apart, but funny now that guy has completely pulled out of all food businesses he got involved with. So he was going to open this like big food hall. He ended up ditching that everything he invested in. He's done with,
1: but Hapa ramen was your brand.
0: Yeah. And is it currently your brand anymore? It could be. I mean, like they technically owned it, but then they they, uh, surrendered all rights to it. So, uh, I could go and reopen hopper Ramen if I wanted to, you know, but is it tainted? Is the name tainted? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think people really like it actually, you know, do they know I, you, they still know you for that name? Yeah. Yeah. But, at the same time, like, I don't know that going back and doing hopper ramen again is what I would want to do or ramen Um, altogether. You mean, no, I mean, I'd like to do ramen again in a different way than we did it. Then I think that looking back on it now and the way we did hopper ramen, it was so like aggressively, like we need to do it this one way. And like, we can't bend on anything like in terms of like the ingredients that we use and like changing things up. And I see now that I could have had a little more like, I don't know, like, been a little more flexible with the way that we were doing the food you know and um listen to our guests more i think that i was really like fuck the guests like i'm right and they're wrong like you know like what what would they say just you know like people would be like oh like i really like you know like like this style can you guys do it this way or like i like these ingredients that you put in there but they're like out of season right now and i'd be like no we're gonna do it our way only you know so looking back on it now i can see that like I think I'm just older and I think I've softened a lot so um if i was going to go back and do it again i'd do it really differently
1: Uh, scott as somebody like we said who's been doing your restaurant for so long and and i don't know and i'm not asking but i'm even if you did have investors and you hear your friend richie going through basically being hung out to dry by people who essentially was there to help him but obviously everyone's mostly out to help themselves first uh you know does this happen a lot do you see it a lot have you seen, have you lived through something similarly, you know, can this happen anywhere and we just have to count our blessings that we're working with the best people with the best intentions?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard. Um, as soon as you start bringing money into the, into the equation, it, it, it makes everything difficult because like you said, at the end of the day, I don't care who you are. You're worried about the bottom line and you're worried about your investment. And that's the tough part to find that symbiotic relationship with investor and chef. Um, And like Richie's saying, as you get older, you do eventually realize that you have to have that balance as a chef to be able to take the chef hat off and put the business hat on and make decisions that you might not necessarily as the younger chef or as the the more stubbornly driven chef, I'm doing it my way, I'm doing it my way, I'm doing it my way, but you eventually realize, well, maybe I can make these small decisions still my way. But now I have people in the seats and they're happy. And at the end of the day, that's what you want to do, right? You want to make people happy and you want them to come back and support you. So uh, it's it's a tough line as a chef to be able to do that. But it also shows a sign of maturity. I think as long as the restaurant business has ever been around and will continue it's never gonna be easy to have that chef investor relationship i don't have any investors in beast but my first restaurant the wine bar when i bought it from jamie kennedy i had investors because it was a much bigger restaurant there was a lot more money involved and eight months into it i walked away because uh, everything that we had talked about as we were going to run the restaurant became not so. Uh, <laughs> not not the same that, uh, as our original agreement, and 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 that's. That is probably the biggest cliche and age-old story of chef versus investor. It's it's that uh, quote-unquote silent investor or, you know, the people who are going to give you the money that said, you know what, you're the talent, I'm going to let you do whatever you want, and which is great, and that sounds great, and that usually works until you're not doing the numbers that they had expected. And as soon as that happens, that's when the silence is lifted, and that's when... Their opinion comes in, which in all honesty, they should have an opinion because they've put a lot of money into it. And But their opinion doesn't always necessarily match yours most of the time. It doesn't and isn't necessarily what's best for the business. It's just what they think should be done. And it's hard for you as now just the chef to tell them no you're wrong I mean you you do you stand up for your rights but eventually they have the say so because they're the controlling
1: interest partner you talk about maturity and that's something we all go through I think you can't grow as a person no matter what your line of work is without understanding how to mature and we've all made mistakes and we've all grown from our mistakes hence maturity if you don't grow from those mistakes you're not becoming more mature do you have any mistakes that you brought basically from wine bar to be and you realize that you've matured now and you've benefited from that maturity absolutely that stands out
2: absolutely I mean I, I I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason absolutely and uh, the the main thing that I did with beast was not get investors <laughs> 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 that was, you know I, I totally I, I don't think getting investors was a mistake uh, with the wine bar I think that uh, having somebody invested in me who I didn't know very well And kind of let a lot of uh, judgment calls on my part slide um, because I really wanted to do this project and I really uh, you know at the end of the day I couldn't do it without them Um, if I was to do it all over again or at least in a new scenario I would definitely partner up with somebody who I knew a little bit better and I think Definitely would get a lot more things in writing, which as a chef, you don't necessarily think about that again, because you almost put these blinders on yourself because you're so passionate and you want to do this so bad that you don't actually think as rationally as you should, which is what I tell any of my friends who are opening up a restaurant now or continually, you know, remind myself is you have to put everything on the table before you start and get everything in writing so that then when you go down the road and questions come up, because uh, let's face it, what you think and what they think isn't necessarily what's going to match up. It's a restaurant, you really have. You can do as many projections and business plans and, and anything that you want. You have no idea what's going to happen once you open those doors. So, to get as, as much thing, things in writing beforehand so that there's no surprises down the road is probably the number one advice that I give to any any anybody going into business, whether it's
1: a chef or, or even on the investor side. Well, well, let's, uh, that's enough business talk for now. Yeah, let's it's talk- boring. Yeah, let's talk talk about why we're really here. Uh, We're here to talk about ramen. You guys are here together October 31st. This is going to air a few weeks after that. But you guys are here in Toronto doing your second annual ramen pop-up on Halloween together. I need to know, you know, ramen is so complex and it's so simple and it's all the best things that represent Japan, in my opinion. How did you develop your style of ramen, Richie? Uh, I made it at home a lot.
0: So when I started Hapa, before I started Hapa, uh, I would go out to eat at Ram, eat ramen in San Francisco. And I kind of just didn't like a lot of the places, you know, it had like a, a lot of sameness to everything. So I started making it at home a lot and um, people would come over and eat and they'd be like, oh, this is really good. And I'd be like, and I was, at the time I was working at NOPA, which is like a California, like Mediterranean restaurant. So I was very, very, very far removed from any sort of like Japanese cooking, except for what I was doing at home. Um, so you know uh we tried to in our approach at hoppa we tried to take you know good in-season vegetables use good you know pork bones um and then combine a ton of different styles so we basically make like a tonkotsu broth but then we would season it with tare so it would be, become like a tonkotsu shoyu like hybrid and then it also got like a healthy dose of salt so we kind of like bridged the gap between shio shoyu and tonkotsu like all in one broth which some people fucking hated you know because like they (laughs) could because they couldn't look at it and be like you know they want to look at it and be like oh i like this kind of ramen and you know we would tell them like what it was and they'd be like "Mm." Uh, but then other people loved it um and we had a very 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 loyal following so that's what we're gonna do tomorrow and i've been playing around with a lot of different stuff like i've been really into, into uh chicken ramen lately okay so that's become like my new favorite thing although my kids didn't like it last time i made it <laughs> uh, they, were, they were straight up like they were like we like the other one better um
1: where's the pork belly yeah
0: yeah they were they just didn't, weren't into it i mean um, going from chicken f- since having pork belly though like that's tough i, I mean what I like to do with the chicken ramen is put chashu in it. So okay, it has pork. Sure. But I also, I don't know. I also like to do it with just chicken
2: in it, you know? Whatever's in the fridge, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the ramen at Imanishi is just chicken and it's fucking delicious. Yeah. Chicken ramen. It's one of my favorite ramens yeah. in the city. And it's just straight up chicken. Where's fa- that? Imanishi. Imanishi,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's killer. My favorite ramen in the Bay Area is from this place called Upuku that's uh, like an izakaya. And they're known for like all their chicken yakitori and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. They have a a chicken ramen there and it's just noodles, scallion, white pepper, and chicken, like pulled chicken. And that's it. It's like the most simple, like delicious ramen. And I tell people that's my favorite one and they're like, what? (laughs) So, yeah,
1: tomorrow we're going to do pork. And, you know, what's your take on, on ramen? You know Richie has, you know, a Japanese background. He's experienced a, a little bit from the West Coast. There's a lot of, you know, Asian influence close by. What's your, you know, uh, take on ramen, Scott? Like, where, where does ramen come into your cooking? I, I mean, I don't know you personally as a soup
2: Chef. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't really make soup. <laughs> um, but I love noodles. And I think that's why, like, if you were to ask me like between pho and ramen, I would go ramen every day and twice on Tuesday. Like I, I think b- that Italian background in me, like really has that yearning for like the slurping of the noodles. And I do like a good broth, but I, I, I believe in comparison to other broth based kind of uh, ethnic dishes. Okay. <sighs> I like ramen because of the ratio of noodles to broth is just the right amount of both. Uh, I had no experience with ramen as a kid. My first ever ramen experience was a young cook with just top ramen. Uh, oh yeah.
1: Okay. I was like expecting a young cook in a kitchen, but no, a young no,
2: no, no, no. It was cook. having no yeah. money at all exactly. and only being able to, you know, <laughs> and only eat so much craft dinner before you're like, I got to fucking try something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I actually, used to the first couple times i had it i was like i didn't like the noodles um uh, the broth was okay because i think there's so much msg in those packets that's right so i was kind but i kind of like liked the packet on its own so um, just dip your finger in it yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. for fun dip yeah savory savory fun dip so I actually used to go to a to a, an Asian grocery store and buy miso and then use the miso to doctor up the broth hey. and stuff like that because I could still afford that because a little a miso goes a long, a long way and is not super expensive. And then as I started, kind of, I, I don't think I actually had my first like ramen experience until probably I would say maybe ten years ago, if if not uh, even earlier than, or like closer to now than that.
1: Is that when you were in the states? No, I think it's after I moved
2: here. I after think the first time here? I ever had ramen was in Toronto. Actually, I, th- I would, no, I, I I correct myself. I think the first time I've ever had ramen was at Mamafuku Noodle Bar in New York. Okay. And that was when, when we went down as the group of seven to cook the James Beard house. So that was probably about six or seven years ago now.
1: That's actually one of my questions. What's your take on like the Mamafuku kind of corporate ramen? I mean, the influence of Momofuku can't be denied.
0: Correct. Especially in terms of like popularizing ramen and bringing it, you know. To the West. Yeah. And I've had really good ramen at at Noodle Bar, you know, and I love that it's open late. Um, So, you know, I think that it's good. I think that the more mainstream that ramen becomes, I think it's better for ramen as a whole, you know, because... think something's great about the momofuku ramen is that it's not super traditional you know ramen in japan is they take all the risks and they do crazy shit with ramen there you know and everyone has this idea in their head that ramen in the states at least that ramen's like this very traditional thing and they think it's like this like ancient recipe and it's not it's like a new japanese food oh really it's like a modern japanese food you know i think that The more popular it comes, the more mainstream it becomes, it's better because people need to kind of like open their minds in terms of like thinking about what ramen can be, you know? And I think that we're like just starting to see like different styles and, you know, people doing different stuff with the soups. Um, Something that we were going to start doing at Hapa that no one has done as far as I know is in terms of making the noodles the liquid we were going to use in them was going to be like a highly seasoned liquid. So the noodle itself would, instead of just being built on like water and flour, it would have, you know, dashi in it or, you know, anything like that. I think the more that we can get ramen, ramen, into people's heads is like a more mainstream type of food. Like, you know, hamburgers and pizza. I think that's good. You know,
1: I hear all the time that ramen is basically a hamburger. If you ever think about it, or it's like, it's like a double cheeseburger. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that before. You've heard this obviously.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, the soup alone is like pretty intense, you know, it's highly seasoned. It's really, really, really rich. And then you throw on top of that, a giant pile of noodles and you throw on top of that pork and you throw an egg on top of it. It's a lot of food, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, like we weighed the, the hopper ramen bowl at the market one day and it was like three and a half pounds.
2: <laughs>
0: so it's hard. It's hardy. People would come down there like, like in running clothes, like they would like jog down there and they would get ramen. I'd be like, you're not jogging back.
1: You know? <laughs> That's California
0: in a nutshell. Yeah.
1: Are Californians good slurpers? Mm. <laughs> no. Cause th- isn't there a, like an art to the ramen like you're supposed to like really embrace the slurp and yeah. they do
0: so in japan no i mean i see it so seldom that when i see someone do it right i'm like hey
2: good job Yeah, no, you're right yeah. yeah i don't think yeah. you can't i don't think legally you're not allowed to slurp in yoga pants i think it's a, <laughs> yeah it's like something happens shots and it's fired scott it's it's vivian it's shots fired <laughs> you know who was a good can slurper granola in the bowl of ramen. <laughs>
0: renee red was a good slurper
2: i believe i think he does everything right he was good yeah and I think he yeah. does everything right <laughs>
0: he, he had like he had ramen like all over his shirt like i felt like i was like i was like oh man i think he ruined his shirt any
1: other jake. celebs uh, famous people that you've ever served some good ramen to i mean
0: like bay area people mostly you know like dan the automator who's like a hip-hop producer used to come down a lot he comes to toronto a lot too he came, he's been into beast a couple times too. yeah hmm? jake
1: Toronto.
0: Oh yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal came one That's day.
1: That's
0: a big name. <laughs> I wasn't there name. though. I, I, I left to get coffee and <laughs> of I course. came and I came back and like all the girls were like swooning and I was like <laughs> I was like, What's going on? Like, like Jake Gyllenhaal was just here.
1: So so yeah. what's, what's the timeline been since Hapa Ramen, since the whole fiasco? What have you been working on until now? What's keeping you busy? I mean, got a lot. That was 2015. So I consulted with a couple of restaurants
0: and then I worked with Delfina Restaurant Group for a year, uh, which was great. And you know, speaking of restaurants that have been around for a long time that deserve recognition, they've been around for going on 18 years now. And then doing pop-ups with my friend Christian under this thing called IDK, which stands for I don't know. <laughs> (laughs) And doing a lot of writing, that's... It's been it.
1: Yeah. Uh, anybody, Shout out to Chef's
0: Feed. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, your social media li- at Line Cook, and that's across all social media. Chef's Feed. You know, let's talk more about your online policing of uh, social media foods, so, because that seems to me what's keeping you pretty busy as well. And, and you've created almost like, you know, especially in California, social media is everything. And if you can be the totem for telling everybody what shit and like come on open up your eyes I like that I need more Richie Nakatos in my life well I run social media for for chef's feed so
0: I see a ton of food media every day Um, it's kind of it's my job to kind of comb through all that stuff and I see a lot of bullshit you know I see a lot
2: of terrible stuff Yep. and fuck clear pumpkin pie that's yeah. all i have to say did you see that fuck no see i that. did
1: not see that one go it's ahead the biggest please bullshit
2: i've ever seen elenia elenia is <laughs> oh, doing nice a, a clear pumpkin i mean it's like it's
1: this a little, little rotovap thing. or something I, they yeah.
2: clarify the pumpkin through the rotovap which creates a liquid that they then set with with hydrocolloids which it's fucking horrible which sounds disgusting. everything that's wrong with food why does pumpkin
0: pie need to be clear i don't want to eat a big plate of hydrocolloid you know like
2: anything i don't uh, even know what that is yeah, I was but gonna it say sounds I, I fucking yeah. disgusting i don't know what yeah. that it's either
1: uh, but i mean it's alinea right like when we talk about you know the restaurant capital of the world it's chicago you know or if we say the u.s rather and alinea is on the top of that list like you're you know if you're if you have 500 dollars to spend on yourself and you're going to Chicago, that's generally the first place you go and you want to have an experience like none other. Like n- like not at Noma, not at Next, like nothing. Like this is top of the line as far as American or even worldly diners are concerned. So when they go in and they see that on the menu, don't they kind of expect that? yeah
0: i mean you know people want to be able to say i ate clear pumpkin pie or take a picture of it or whatever but you know can you take a picture of it it's clear (laughs) yeah it's probably pretty hard (laughs) i mean it's
2: it's like crust
0: (laughs) food like that just doesn't excite me anymore you know like why i I don't know It, it was really cool to me when i was young you know um and but i i would just rather eat something that's has like thought and care put into it. And that fills me up. I don't need to like think about my food.
1: You know what I mean? Well, like- oh, I do know what you mean because I-, I jokingly say that, you know, we're in the best time of the millennial generation because we're finally not giving shit, a- a shit about it anything anymore you know what I mean like the fact that I, and I joke I always tell my girlfriend like listen I have a dad bod you know these are in right now I'm a, I'm a top priority here I, you know like finally like yeah exactly you know what I mean like, like it's that understanding of like you don't need to care as much as you thought you did you know we all need to like take a step back and enjoy the simpler things because the simpler things are actually the finer yeah. things and that's what ramen is to me
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, like when Scott was in San Francisco last time we went to Zuni and that restaurant's been around for forever and it's so good. And, and, you know, we get chicken there, you know, perfect roast chicken. It's an, it's incredible. So more and more, that's the kind of stuff I want to eat when I go out, you know, or, you know, or go to a ramen place that isn't some super hyped spot, you know,
2: that I know my kids will like, I don't want to be told how to eat my food like I'm 40 years old and I don't feel like I need instructions on how to eat a dish I'd like to know afterwards what the if it's something that actually like blew me away I'd like to know what the chef did and why 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 they did it but I don't need a server to tell me how chef thinks that you should eat this way this that
1: well food has obviously become too fashionable in a lot of ways and what's not fashionable things that aren't fashion in my opinion (laughs) right so food has to be you know price range aside it has to be fulfilling to your mental your physical needs like if I'm going to go out and experience a restaurant if I'm leaving my home if I'm not going to cook myself I'm going to spend money there's so much fulfillment of expectation but fulfillment of wallet fulfillment of, of appetite is it the backwards thinking of like maybe corporations or social media marketing or PR that we've just lost a lot of our touch and our understanding of what's simple and good versus what's elaborate and maybe good something that uh, our mutual
0: friend Brett Cooper who has a restaurant in San Francisco called Aster uh, told me that's restaurant in San Francisco it's great (laughs) Um, he, he was talking to me about what he's trying to instill in his cooks is what's the story that they're telling their guests when they come to eat and if the story is so much about the restaurant and the cooks and the food and the technique, then the point gets lost, you know, and the story should be that we're here to care for you and we're here to make you feel better and nourish you. And when he said that, I was like, that's really smart and interesting and like mature, you know, for like a young chef, uh, you know, a guy with a Michelin star. So he was saying he's telling his cooks to pull way back on technique driven stuff, you know, and get back to sort of like the roots of like simple cooking. So I think that that's, An approach that more chefs could be taking these days, you know, and I think that's something you've seen a lot lately is so many restaurants want to plate their food in a style that'll play well on Instagram. And you know, I mean, there's like restaurants that are having like fucking stunt food and cute names for stuff, and you know, like ridiculous plating styles. And like, what's the point?
1: You know what I mean? Like, Especially because they're trying so hard and then you will perfectly tell them how their execution, execution is shit. Like, it's amazing how it, you take it takes all these corporate heads to think of how a dish should be and then they put it on a photograph and you're like, how did you guys with all your money and brains come up with such a shitty concept? Whether or not it was with a chef, the point is like, again, recently on your page, there was this like burger with like kimchi and, and meat and all this stuff and it looked really bad. It looked egg and kimchi it was all this stuff and it was just like a like I, taking a bite into that would have been a sloppy gross mess There was so much kimchi on that thing yeah, and there was too much kimchi there was on like it was like kale on it i don't know what the fuck was going on and then you go to harry's child broiled here in, in parkdale and you see what a perfect burger can be you know what i mean and, and we're very fortunate in toronto we are burger city i don't know if you would agree or disagree with that we love our burgers yeah, and definitely. the simplest ones is done in a shitty diner or to made to look shitty in parkdale that's Kind of had this resurgence and that restaurant has been around probably since the 70s when, when Harry's was first around and now it's got new ownership and and yeah we joke about how hipsters take over this stuff but they kept it the way it should have been kept. Yes, they're hipsters, yes, they have that kind of vibe, but they also kept the simple food aspect, and that's why they're so successful and it tastes so good. You know, how often are you seeing in California, you know, too many food pictures or or restaurants really ruining what they're item is just because they're not keeping it as simple as it should be a lot a lot um i mean like you think about it like
0: some things just don't need to be chefed up you know some things don't need to be plated with tweezers you know what i mean i look at some of these like places and like stuff that they post and i wonder like can they make a ham sandwich the right way you know or like can they make like a perfect uh, omelet and you know you think about like food that you want to be like nourishing and satisfying and i just don't need like a lot of edible flowers on my food you know what i mean so
2: it's all for that Instagram picture. It's all for that Instagram. Yeah. yeah,
1: but also you guys are a part of that, right? Like where where does the, you know, you know like Beasts especially, like your food is very visually appealing. Ramen does have a lot of visual appeal to it, especially when you change things up. You know, we, we all joke about how it's taking away from us, but we're all succumbing to it. You know, how does that play on your everyday? Like I, I like when I hear Scott talk about it, it's like, I don't want PR. I can't afford it. But at the same time, I don't think you necessarily want it. Huh. So you doing it and And I like it as a patron, you know, I want to see because chefs are rock stars these days, whatever, you know, in any way, shape you want to call them. And I like calling them rock stars because, you know, I like when we put our favorite artists on a pedestal because they're working hard. They deserve the recognition. And Instagram and Twitter is a good way to see into our artists' minds on a regular basis. What is it like when you are taking a photo you know, for your followers and do you ever have that kind of like dichotomy that like paradigm kind of like, what am I doing here? Like I'm giving into this, but I need this. Like how, how much of that struggle do you deal with? I mean, my Instagram is just pictures of my kids, really.
0: (laughs) Um, I mean like with the hopper ramen Instagram, I would often, you know, Uh, caption something like look at this piece of trash or something like that you know and just (laughs) leave it at that just because i don't know just try to be funny and like relaxed about it yeah yeah just like food is the least serious thing on earth you know like (laughs) like chefs take themselves so seriously you know and like we literally just play with knives and fire all day so like everyone can just fucking chill out um (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, I don't... And you eat, and then you, like, poop it out. like Right, right. Yeah, we're not saving anyone's life, you know? (laughs) Not even close. Yeah. So, you know, as much as I like to look at food media and food Instagram and stuff like that and read funny food tweets, I don't know. For me personally, I don't post a lot of food pictures, you know? I don't... And it's funny because I think that there's a certain like split between the people that follow me. I think some people follow me for cooking stuff. And I think some people follow me because they think that I have cute kids and a cute dog. You know what I mean? (laughs) And they're very split. You can see like the difference in terms
1: of like what I post, who likes what. Sure. So, you gotta combine cute kids with your food photos that's that's what it is
0: i'm trying to keep my kids as far away from cooking as i can oh so (laughs) is that a
1: a big deal to you like making sure that they don't get into a a very hard working industry like do you feel like it's sometimes not worth getting into it because it's it will ruin you like i mean i'm in media media and cooking is the same way long hours you're on your feet all the time dealing with people all the time and every time you put something out you might love it somebody else who's not you gives you their opinion you're like why did i even ask you
0: i wouldn't rather my kids stayed away from the restaurant industry <laughs> <laughs> if i can help it i mean like i want them to have a good life and you know spend time with their friends and make good money you know all the things that you don't get when you're in
1: the restaurant <laughs> industry <laughs> well you two come from very similar paths how did you two first meet uh, oh we met in austin 2013
2: yeah i think so yeah
0: It's an event called Indie Chefs Week. Um, And it's actually... uh, We met our good friend, Ryan LeShane, there. He's from Houston. Our other friend, BJ Smith, from Portland. We all met there, and we cooked together, and we just kind of all got along. Um, And we've stayed really close friends ever since then. So... And Scott was, like, doing really crazy food you were doing like those bone marrow profiteroles that year and i was like that's something i would never think of it's really cool you know he was fun to hang out with and you gotta show up all the american chefs when i go
2: down there <laughs> <laughs> do
1: you have any fun richie stories that you want to him to to tell us
2: yeah i mean i don't think Richie's been talking a lot, but I don't think we've talked a lot enough about Richie. Yeah. Um, Let's let's
1: hear some stories, Scott.
2: I, 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 being that I, I don't have a very, um, long history with ramen. Um, you know, I kind of taught myself what, which Ramens I liked and which ones I didn't. And I always gravitated towards the bolder, more flavorful broths. Like, uh, was it spicy Netsu? Is that a, is that a thing? I don't even know. I can't remember. <laughs> just like, like like, spicy Tonkotsu. Yeah, yeah. Just like, you know, like, like my food, like very flavor forward, like powerful, strong broths. Um, and I think that's why, I enjoy Richie's ramen so much is because it's kind of like in your face it's all those which could be like you know uh, I don't even know if lighter is a good term but like more subtle broth but when you bring them all together it gives you this just like rich unctuous like delicious delicious deep broth it's so good and uh, when I first met Richie doing Indie Chefs Week um, he was still doing some ramen dishes for those dinners and that's when his his real creativity came through and I some of the things that I tried I mean because he was doing something that I had never had before he was using the noodles as part of the dish instead of just like ramen noodles in a dish it was like no I'm I'm gonna do a duck bone broth with rare duck breast and huckleberry noodles or I'm gonna do horseradish noodles with a beef broth and prime rib onto like he was doing crazy shit like that that I thought was just so inventive and so amazing because it was at that point I don't even think any it wasn't about ramen necessarily anymore it was a very well thought out beautifully visually presented dish that stood up to all the rest of the food that everybody else was putting out and at the end of the day it was just it was a bowl of soup yeah those those (laughs) huckleberry noodles are a pain in the
0: ass (laughs) (laughs) i can imagine those were hard to make um yeah i mean like i like i was saying earlier i think people don't approach ramen noodles like they, they you know they uh, buy them usually. That's an afterthought. So taking the time to make them, making them is hard enough. And then, but then doing something creative with them is even harder. And so around that time, when we were doing indie chefs week, I was doing, a lot of dehydrated stuff and then it would be like 10% the weight of the flour i take out and sub in this like flavoring agent, whether it's like huckleberries or, you know, horseradish or whatever. Um, you know, chili flake, we were smoking the flour a lot. And then, which then led to, you know, the brine that you add in, to make the noodles to a seasoning that brine and we're kind of like just just getting to the point
1: of like really blowing that wide open and then the restaurant closed. (laughs) so yeah (laughs) how do you experiment like how do you decide these kind of flavor combinations or even like noodle creations that seem widely unavailable on like a worldly scale like i've never heard of huckleberry noodles i mean you know
0: like huckleberries and duck go well together. So, and we had a bunch of huckleberries we got from the farmer's market. And so you look at huckleberries, you're like, how are we going to incorporate this into a ramen dish? You know, you don't make huckleberry broth. That'd be disgusting. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: um, you try to think subtlety. Of, yeah. Right. So the noodles are visually amazing. Like imagine this like yeah, purple noodle in a broth. Like it's crazy. Yeah.
0: Transporting those things to Austin was stressful. <laughs> I was like, Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, you you know my approach is uh trying to think of a complete dish you know instead of like starting with one ingredient i try to think like well like in terms of a bowl of soup what makes this not more more than just noodles and broth you know so yeah we were doing like a beef ramen with like rare prime rib and like like a potato wedge on it with like a ton of horseradish so we call that like like christmas dinner ramen or something like that (laughs)
2: um
0: Yeah, we're just doing like a bunch of different stuff, um, experimenting a lot, but trying to have like a really solid idea of like what the finished product would be. So we did, you know, a chicken ramen that had like rare chicken breast, which sounds gross, but it's really delicious. Um, And, uh, and like a bitter orange puree, like dotted on it. So we had a lot of interesting, weird stuff. But when you think about it, at the end of the day, that's just chicken and chicken soup and, and, you know, like, you know, citrus flavor, which is you know, duck with orange. Yeah. Chicken with so, orange.
1: And what's, uh, what's it like after service when you guys first started becoming friends? Uh, were you guys just all having a few drinks after service in these cool Austin festival? I wouldn't say a few. We drink a lot. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> it's more than a few. <laughs> I think that's why we became such good friends. That's yeah. And, and he's a very good cuddler. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, true. you guys shared a room.
0: I, I, if I can dig out the picture, I have this picture of us in Panama where Scott's like, you can basically just see like my, ankles sticking out (laughs) because he's sitting on top of (laughs) me um (laughs)
2: <laughs> we have just as much... Fun. The cooking part sometimes put a wrench, puts a wrench in our fun, but it allows us to, to travel all around and, and, and cook together and stuff and hang out. And
1: so you have Halloween together, which is going to be after... Uh, sorry, before this is re- released, unfortunately. What's some What are some other upcoming events that uh, you may be having going on in the Bay Area? Or can we expect you back in Toronto anytime soon? I mean, you know, anytime I can come to, Tor- to Toronto, I love to, you know? So...
0: And and it's been a year since I was here last, so it's really good to be back. And I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll come here anytime. I love it here. Um, you don't mind the cold it's cold.
1: <laughs> it got here just in time. Yeah. You'll be gone just in time. It's cold. But um, if it was
2: on outside, would you want to be doing a ramen? Right, no,
0: no, right. Right. And I've been here during the summertime, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it is very cold, but I like it, you know, I mean, we don't get that in San Francisco really, uh, in terms of like stuff going on in the Bay area. um, We're going to have more idk stuff going on lately we've been on like a hardcore uh like charity bend with that like for harvey victims and then for earthquake relief and then we did a lot of stuff for the northern california fires so
1: why don't you plug those socials and and those sites so people know where to check up on Uh, events it's uh idk concepts on both twitter and instagram
0: um and my partner in that Christian manages a lot of that, but Christian and I have a very, very similar opinions and approach to social media. He might even be like more cranky on social media than I
1: am. (laughs) If that's possible. Yeah. Like,
0: like he tells me I'm boring. He's like, he's like, you used to be good on Twitter, but now it's just boring. Um, so we'll have we're you know, we're gonna do a hot dog pop-up, although I'm not sure when we're gonna get that done now. It was supposed to be a couple weeks ago. Um, and then more ramen pop-ups as the weather gets colder. Great. So yeah. Californians could use a couple hot dogs in their life. Yeah, I mean like it's <laughs> so there's this thing in San Francisco called the Museum of Ice Cream, and it's just like a place to go and take Instagram pictures. Uh it's not actually a museum, you know, like you can, you go there and there's like a, a swing you can sit on and there's like a, a pool full of, with, the uh, sprinkles and it's a unicorn. yeah, it's just, there's just a lot of like dumb shit to go do in there. And, uh, so we were going to do the IDK hot dog museum as a response to that. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're going to do just a bunch of different styles of hot dogs.
2: And Scott, what do you got going on in the, in the coming months? Just gearing up for uh, for the holidays. I think this will the, the ramen the ramen pop up will be the last uh, event until the new year. Cool. Yeah, just plugging away and getting ready for for the busy season.
1: You want to plug your socials again
2: and uh, your websites? Yeah, there's all kinds of uh, Thebeastrestaurant.com dot com is our website, and then my instagram is at scott vivian the restaurant is at beast toronto and twitter is at beast restaurant which is both linked to the instagrams
1: and uh any shout outs to some bay area chefs that you guys both want to just say hello to and and you know spread the word of some amazing culinary experiences for us torontonians and of course for the the californians if you're going to san francisco
0: uh eat at aster which we talked about it's my favorite restaurant it it's incredible uh eat at rich table uh who it's just got so good. their uh, michelin star which was long overdue for long them long overdue um congrats to qua for getting the third yeah qua uh under matt kirkley who's owned by daniel patterson for god ever i mean i think they they've been open for eight years now so and they just got bumped up to three stars which is incredible wow which usually
2: and they they just had not just but they had the the chef change in between ratings so the i I think the biggest risk and what people always worry about is like okay well we have two michelin stars there's this new chef and are we going to retain those two michelin stars are we going to lose a star these guys gained a star which is like that's pretty much you yeah. don't see that very often at all at least not in the first year yeah and then uh californios which is
0: owned by val Contu, just got two michelin stars and they got four stars from the chronicle in the same week so th- he's having a really good week um <laughs> yeah. they're, really and they're doing people. mexican food yeah so oh, yeah okay um, which
1: is almost you would think is a little difficult for california you know
0: i mean like california i mean there's a ton of great mexican food in san francisco uh, but there's nothing high end, you right. know? There's nothing f- like fancy, you know? The fanciest it gets is probably this place called Nopolito, which is great. My kids love it and it puts a big dent in my checking account every month. <laughs> um, but it's great, you know? Uh, but then Val's really doing like super refined, super high end tasting menu Mexican food. So, um, and then uh, our friends at Outerlands, if you need a great place to go for lunch, it's out by the beach in the
2: sunset. Um, any of your favorite Scott? He's kind of naming them all because yeah. We <laughs> whenever I'm in San Francisco, I go around with him. And <laughs> yeah. Where was the the Italian place that you took me to? Like out outside of the city. Oh, Joe's. Joe's of Westlake. shit. That place is so good. And that's like getting back to that. Like they've been around forever. Um, They just, they do it really, really well. It's like, it would be like uh, San Francisco's version of like, um, uh like any of our like yosos or any of those kind of places that like they don't really care about any of the shit that's going on in social media and food media and stuff like that they just do like unbelievable stuff that they've been doing chicken parm and spaghetti and meatballs and stuff like that That's like that's what i want to eat like every day if i lived in san francisco i'd probably go there once a week it's like the place
0: that i take people when they get off the plane Cause it's sort of like, it's not in like downtown or anything like that. It's like out in Daly city. So it's like on the way to my house from the airport and you just stop in there and order the whole menu. Well,
1: uh, I think the biggest takeaway from this interview is support the restaurants that have been doing it the longest and the most consistent.
2: There's a reason why. Yeah, I mean, like, you know... If you want a good meal, there's a reason why this place has been open for 25 years. They're doing something right. Yeah, I mean, that's,
0: that's why we go to Zuni. That's why we take people to... Delphina or any of their restaurants that's why I mean like Nopa's been open for going on 11 years now
1: so and that's why I go to Beast <laughs> we're not there yet but getting we're, there. Going. Yeah, we're getting you're on, there are you're
2: on your way I think Zuni just celebrated their 39th birthday or something yeah something like something, like, so something that's, insane like that
1: well yeah. we'll see you in, in 23 there there Scott <laughs> if I'm still alive <laughs> uh, guys thank you so much for coming on to speaking duck on neversleepsnetwork.com. I want to thank my guests Richie Nakano and Scott Vivian thank you. Thank you you so much for coming on again, and we'll see you on the interwebs. Thanks for having us. Thanks, man. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.